morning, everybody. Just do a scripture reading this morning. If you would turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We're going to be there this morning as we continue our series on the solas, which I'll get to in a minute. But let's first look to the Word of God, and then I'll dismiss the kids after we do our reading this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, so open your Bibles there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, please uh, feel free to grab one of those from the back next to the sound booth there. And if you don't own a Bible, you can keep that for yourself. So hear the word, Lord, this morning, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thank you, Lord, for your word that is true and supremely authoritative in our lives. So I can now dismiss the kids. Kids, you're dismissed to Children's Church, teachers as well. We're glad to have... Uh, our teachers there also can share the gospel with our children as well. So, as I mentioned just a second ago, we are, uh, we just began a new series last week on called the five solas, which is referring to the five pillars of the Protestant Reformation, and they are as follows. Follow with me here in the Latin: sola scriptura, which means scripture alone; sola gratia, which means grace alone; sola fide, which is Faith alone, solus Christus, Christ alone, and then ultimately all pointing to soli Deo Gloria, which is to the glory of God alone. And that completes our Latin uh, lesson this morning, so you're, you're lucky that's all I know about Latins, because uh, I, I could go further, but that's all I know. So these, these five souls that we just spoke about, they were developed, we talked last week, at a particular time in history under, under a particular context, uh, and namely, it was the 16th century in Europe. And it was at this time that the, the Roman Catholic Church was pretty much the powerhouse of Europe. They were certainly the market on, they had the market on the religious affairs of what was going on in Europe, but they also wielded a lot of political power as well. And, and in, in a lot of cases, uh, both the crown and, uh, and, the, and the church were pretty much joined together. They were wedded together, joined the hip, as it were. And during this time, it was in order, they were looking to raise money to build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and the church had allowed, because of this, the sale of indulgences. Now, if you remember from last week, indulgences were these certificates that were sold, that could be bought by, by any, any person, and they would grant, effectively grant forgiveness for past sins and even future sins, believe it or not. So, essentially, you could, you could actually prevent, you know, preventively buy an indulgence before you indulged in your sin. Um, how convenient, right? Uh, but you could also apply these certificates, these indulgences, to other people. So family members or friends that had died, had gone before, that are now in 
uh, purgatory. Now, if you're not familiar with purgatory, it's a Roman Catholic teaching that there's this holding tank after, after you die that all souls go to. And this is a place where you undergo uh, torment um, as punishment for your sins that you were unconfessed here on earth. Ultimately, for, 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 the, uh, for, the, for the benefit of purifying you so that you could be entered into heaven. Now, if you look in Scripture, you're not going to find it anywhere. It's not in Scripture, but that's, that's what they were teaching. That's what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching. And so these sales of indulgences, along with some other corruptions that were going on in the church at the time, the Catholic Church at the time, this is what prompted the Augustinian monk Martin Luther to post his 95 theses. And he wrote them, uh, he wrote 95 of them, I mean, as, as, as it goes. But number 62, I think, really is, is the center uh, of what he was, uh, of his protest, and what became the center of all those reformers when their protest was against the Catholic Church at that time. And that was, he says, in, in uh, Thesis 62, the true treasure of the Church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. So last week what we did was we looked at Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, and we found that that's really the bedrock of, of the rest of the souls. It's because Scripture is true, altogether true, and because of the fact that it's supremely authoritative, uh, it is because of that we can then read and we can learn and understand sola gratia and all the other solas as well. So this morning we're, we're going to look at sola gratia under three headings. I want to look under the human condition, the divine solution, and then lastly, our worshipful response, and that is to the, gra- the response to the grace of God. So let's first turn to the human condition, and we're going to go right back to our text this morning, which is in Ephesians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul writes these sobering words at the beginning of, of our text this morning, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Let me just stop there, right there for a moment. If you're reading this letter, especially for the first time, that's going to be literally shocking to you. Uh, it, especially after the links Paul goes in chapter 1, where he talks about the, the sovereign election of God, uh, the spiritual blessings that we have in Jesus Christ, the, the great mystery of God's will that has now been uh, revealed to us in the gospel. And then you get to chapter 2, and Paul says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So in that simple turn of phrase, he immediately points to the nature of the human condition. He summarizes it in just that one line. Because of sin, what he's saying is that we are by nature all spiritually dead. Uh, and So sin's not then a sickness. It's not even a terminal illness, really. Sin is effectively death. And so then we see, if we just read a little bit further, that Paul now differentiates between physical death and spiritual death. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So Paul tells us that you can simultaneously be dead and alive. So you could say in a sense that we're like the walking dead. You know what I mean? We're, there's, there's an aspect to us that's alive and an aspect to us that's, that is dead. But, but what's important to note that even though there's this distinction, the two understandings of death, these two uh, manifestations of death, I should say, are really uh, connected. They're linked together, they, and they can't really be separated because they're both the result of the fall, they're both the result of sin that we can see all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. 
So you've probably heard that story before in Genesis chapter 3, uh, and even before that when God created uh, the earth, he created the world, he created all that's in it, and, and then uh, the, the shining, uh, the pinnacle of his creation then at the end, is, it, at the end of those six days, seven days, six days, is that he creates man and women in his own image and likeness, as it says. So there's this unique sense in which we are made differently from all the, us, the rest of the created order. And here at Kings, we talk about that as being the Imago Dei, you know, the image and likeness of God. And that means that we were created in, in a particular way to, to worship God by reflecting his, the, the nature, his nature and, his, and to shine forth the radiance of his glory by the way that we exist and the way that we live our lives. So we see that, that Adam and Eve were given the rest of creation around them to, uh, to, to take care of it, but also to enjoy it, right? And then there's this one decree that God gives, which is don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the one decree that he gives. And then right after this, we read that it wasn't very long when we see Satan in the form of a serpent slithering up to Adam and Eve and challenging God's authority, challenging his goodness. And Adam and Eve... In, in turn, believed, chose to re, instead believe Satan and to rebel against their creator. As we read in Genesis 3 and, and all the way through following the rest of Scripture, we can see that the world has been turned upside down because of that, that sin, because of their rebellion against him. And the earth that was once perfectly made, that was, that, uh, that was, that was perfect, that, called, that God called good, is now marred by sin. And so are they as well. So are Adam and Eve, and their identity then has, then has been fundamentally changed because of it. But then, so now what happens is that rather than reflect the glory of the Creator, they, along with all their descendants, which includes us today as well, is that we follow the way of the serpent instead of following after the one who created us. And, and that's when death entered into the created order. And God made it clear to our first parents, Adam and Eve, that the penalty for sin is death. So on that day that they, dis- that they disobeyed, on the day that they rebelled against God, they died. Adam and Eve died. They died immediately in the spiritual sense, and they also took on mortality, which means that they now would eventually die physically as well. And that has been passed down to us as well. So we are now inheritors of that corrupted nature and, and under the penalty of, uh, of death, both spiritual and physical. So, but I want to make sure that I'm clear about what I mean by spiritual because it's not just a figurative language. I'm not saying a, I'm just using spiritual as a figurative way of saying that we've died in some, in some way that, that we can't really point to. But our spiritual death is actually just as real as our physical deaths are as, as well. And what it, so the question is then, well, what do you mean by spiritual death? Well, it means, I think, if we're just looking at this text alone and we look through a scripture as well, it means that we are now idolaters. Rather than worshiping the one true God, we've turned to other things and latched ourselves onto them as our gods. And in this passage, we actually see Paul describing three uh, different gods that we now serve instead of the one true God that we were made and created by to serve and to love. And that is, we now serve the world, Satan, and then lastly, the passions and desires of our flesh. 
But what, so let me just take, pick apart those just, just briefly as well. So what, it mean, what Paul means by the world, and we can see it throughout all of Scripture, uh, especially in the New Testament when it's talking about the world, is that Paul's referring to the, uh, the systems of this world that are opposed to God. So in other words, that we, we now prefer be, the, the evil machinations of the world, the evil ways of the world, understandings of things, uh, worldview is now affected because of it be, now, over and above God himself who made us and above the law that he's given us in his word. Secondly, he, he says here, points out that we also follow after the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Which is, we see that in verse 2. And that's a reference to Satan and the powerful uh, forces of spiritual darkness uh, like his demons and, and these other spiritual forces that are, that are around us. And, and Paul uses this, this term, power of the air, and he, what he's doing, that, doing by that is, he, is he's alluding to the spiritual nature of the Satan's forces, that they are, they are a spiritual uh, breed of evil. And later in Ephesians, uh, Paul will kind of reference this as well uh, in a different way. But similarly, he says, we do not, he says in, in, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul is making it clear that, that the spiritual dimension, even though it's hidden from us, it still affects us. It still interacts with us here in the physical realm as well. Just because we can't see the spiritual darkness that's around us and the forces of Satan and, and demons doesn't make them any less dangerous. In fact, you could, you could actually say that because we don't see them, they're even that much more dangerous to us precisely because we can't see them. So they fight against us. We wrestle against them. right? And the reason, that's the reason why Paul exhorts the church in chapter 6 just uh, one verse before that, that I just read, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So, so you can see that it's, it, just because they're spiritual doesn't mean that we don't interact with them. They don't interact with us. They're not still dangerous to us. In fact, we are uh, under, their, uh, under their control in some respects. So lastly, spiritual darkness uh, as deadness means that we are slaves to the sinful desires and the passions of our flesh, that we carry out the, the, the desires of our bodies and minds, as Paul says. So, if you were here for our series when we went through, um, through the Spirit, internal gospel growth, you, you probably recognize this language, because Paul uses it also in Galatians chapter, chapter 5 when he's talking about uh, fleshly desires, he talks about the flesh, he talks about the, the works of the flesh, and these sort of things. Uh, and what he's me- meaning by these is that we are slaves to those sinful desires. The fleshly desires are those sinful desires that are now part of our nature. So, so he, what he's saying is that sin shapes our thoughts. It shapes our actions. It's, it's the reason why he says we carry, they were carrying out the desires of our bodies and our minds. Paul's, Paul's alluding to the fact that it's not just, sin, sin is not just a series of, uh, of mistakes that we make. Or, or bad choices, or maybe some poor judgment on our behalf. It's, instead, it's actually a condition that we're under. It's, it, it's, it's part of who we are. It's that it's now thoroughly ingrained uh, into the fabric of our very being, so we could say that we now have this nature of sin. We're, by nature, we're sin, sinful. And because we are sinners, then, he goes on to say that we are children of wrath. In other words, that the righteous wrath of God... Who created us is now looming over us as we continue to uh, live in a matter 
of sin in which we live. His just judgment is coming at us in the, in, in, at the point in which we, either when we, when we die or when he returns for us, whichever comes first. And the worst part of this is that we can, we can do nothing about it. That's the whole reason why he says that we're dead in our sins. There's no higher court that we can appeal to. There's no other uh, governor or president or king or other, other kind of sovereign that can give us, uh, can give us uh, clemency or, or can, and can pardon us from our sins. So I want you to take just take a minute and just feel, feel the weight of that, that, that we're dead in our sins, that there's nothing that we can do about it. We're, we're in a state of hopelessness. That's what it means to be dead in our sin. It's, it's, it's hopelessness. It, it means that we're, we're completely unable to save ourselves from the wrath of God and the justice of God that's coming at us that, that we deserve as, as rebels. And that's the takeaway that, that we, we get from this passage in, in throughout Scripture as it teaches us what it means to be in the human condition, that we are, we are willful enemies of God without any ability to be, or desire even to be reconciled to our Creator. We see that also in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. None is righteous, Paul says, no, not one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks after God. Going back to the Reformation now, where, where, uh, where we get this understanding of sola gratia as they, were, as they were rediscovering the gospel, they didn't discover it the first time, they're rediscovering it, is uh, we see Luther, uh, one, of his, one of the books that he wrote during that time, just eight years after the fact that he, he posted those 95 theses, he wrote On the Bondage of the Will. And he, he wrote this as a response to another work that was first, uh, that originated with um, Desiderius Erasmus. So he was a scholar at the time as well. And he wrote this, this book called On, On Free Will, or it's actually now, underst- you could also uh, remember by the diatribe. It's also resp- it's referred to as a diatribe. Um, so it's written by this, this scholar, uh, Desiderius Erasmus. They were contemporaries of one another. And Luther actually highly respected Erasmus. In fact, they had uh, quite an interesting relationship um, f- for quite a while there. That they that um, Luther saw the scholar scholarship that uh, um, and and and, the, and the, the higher intellect that Erasmus had even more than he had, and he often praised him for it. In fact, we could even say that Luther, as well as some of the other reformers, were were indebted to Erasmus because he was the one who first published. The, the New Testament, a Greek version of the, of the New Testament, going back to the original language. And Luther used this, his work, Erasmus's work, then to translate the New Testament into Greek, I'm sorry, into German, the German language, so the common person could have Bibles of their own to read, so it wasn't just for the educated elite any longer. So we, what happened during this, this time, in about 1525, 1524, 25, is Erasmus was com- commissioned by the Pope at the time to write this work, the diatribe, as it's come to be known, um, to combat Luther's teachings because he was seeing that Luther was now attacking the church and, and, and his, his writings and, his, under, and his, uh, his teachings were now quickly growing in popularity, not just in the pocket of Germany, but actually throughout all of Europe. And this is just eight years after he posted his 95 Theses, so you can see quite the impact Luther's having in just a short amount of time. And in, in this uh, diatribe, what Erasmus is positing is that uh, is he's talking about the freedom of the will, the free will, that's, and, and that he's making the case that humans have autonomous free will, meaning that they have, uh, they have true um, free will in order to choose God or to reject God. And although man, he would say, is weakened by sin, he still retains the, the, uh, the ability, without God's assistance, just on his own, 
from his autonomous will, to, in his words, quote, apply himself to those things that lead to eternal salvation, end quote. So Luther read this, and he recognized Erasmus' claims that, that they were an attack, really, on the nature of God's grace, an attack on the gospel itself. And so Luther wrote this in his conclusion, uh, really interesting, the conclusion to his, uh, on the bondage of the will. He says, quote, I give you hearty praise and commendation on this further account, that you alone, in contrast with all the others, have attacked the real thing. That is the essential issue. You have not wearied me with extraneous issues about the papacy, about purgatory, indulgences, and such a life, trifles rather than the real issue, in respect of which almost all to date have sought my blood, though not without, not, not, but though without success. He, and he says here at the end, you and you alone have seen the hinge on which it all turns and aimed for that vital spot, end quote. Luther was saying here that those issues of the papacy, of purgatory, of indulgences, they're not unimportant, but what he's saying is that they really are pointing to a, a, greater, a greater problem, a more serious illness. They're just symptoms of, of a more serious illness that he's seeing as coming from the Catholic Church, and that the Roman Catholic Church's real transgression is that they are mistreating the grace of God. And Luther recognized that in his reading of Scripture, that the heart of the gospel is God's grace. And so nothing less of the gospel was at stake. And that's why it's important for Luther to take the time that he does uh, make, over the course of, his, uh, of his, his life, but in his work, especially on honor bondage of the will, to take the time to defend human, depra- human depravity uh, or, or the, the doctrine of total depravity, because it's not because he loved sin or that he reveled in some way in doom and gloom, but what he was saying was that he rightly concluded that, that grace is not grace at all if it's not divinely initiated and if it's not divinely accomplished. That's what he's trying to say. So for us today, that means until we understand the depths of our depravity, when, until, until we really see ourselves for who we really are, we can't really begin to see the beauty of sola gratia. Only when we have proper knowledge of our sinful nature, viewed through the lens of grace, right, then we are awakened finally to the astonishing reality of the majesty, of the wonder and the glory of Jesus Christ. And that, that brings us to our next point this morning. We just saw the human condition. Now let's look at the divine solution. In his book, The Case for Traditional Protestantism, where uh, Terry L. Johnson, he, he treats each of these uh, solas of the Reformation. He says, quote, Death, defiance, and doom summarize the context in which grace is extended to us. End quote. That's, a, that's, a, that's an incredible statement he's making. But it, first we have to understand what he's meaning by grace. What, what is grace? It's not a term that we typically hear in our culture um, when we do hear it, it's, it's often referring to the way a person, that inner confidence, that, that tranquility that a person seems to exude when they're in the midst of uh, a turbulent time in their life, whether it's psychological or, or emotional uh, or, or physical. So they had great, great grace in that situation, we might say. But when it comes to the Bible, we're, we're not left wondering what the Bible says about what, what grace really means. Um, it's found everywhere through Scripture. In fact, every single one of the, the New Testament epistles... Um, 
opens or closes, or in some, ta- in some ways actually does both, opens and closes, expressing the grace of God. So simply define, if we're going to define grace as, as the way the biblical understanding of grace is, grace is unmerited favor of God. Or in other words, it's the, uh, it's the love of God and the favor of God that's, that's given to sinners undeservedly and unearned. And what's, what's amazing is that we could see as we're, as we're reading the scriptures that we could see that even when grace isn't expressly used, that word grace isn't used, um, isn't used uh, that word isn't used itself, we can still see that, that God's grace is present throughout all of scripture, um, throughout all of his word. And we can even turn back to Genesis chapter 3, which we were, just, we were just in a minute ago as we were talking about Adam and Eve. We can even turn back all the way to, to chapter 3 of Genesis and see that on the day when death and sin and death entered into the world, at the same time, we can still see God's grace on that day. So I'm just going to mention a couple of them. One is that we can see that, first, God is, is merciful to Adam and even by sparing their lives. I mean, they, they, they deserved immediate death, physical and spiritual. And yet we see that God instead shows grace by letting them live. Next, we see, we see that God covers their nakedness, he covers their shame, by giving them clothing to wear. He wraps them with, with clothing so they're no longer, they're, they're, their shame and their nakedness is no longer exposed. But what I want to point out is that the greatest display of God's grace on the day in which sin entered the world and death by sin is grace, God's grace coming in the form of a promise. We see in, in uh, Genesis 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is a promise that's, that's come to be known as the, the Proto-Evangelium, or the, the first gospel, the first instance of the gospel that we see in Scripture, explicitly shown in Scripture. It's a promise that God would, would send a Savior through, at, through Eve's offspring that would eventually defeat the serpent and would save humankind from Satan's uh, vicious grip and, and sin's vicious grip over us. So what we see is that grace is not just, a, uh, it's, it's not just an, an addendum to the gospel, but what we see is that grace is actually at the very heart of the gospel. It's the very means by which we are saved from our hopeless situation. And this saving grace that we see, that we're talking about, this grace that leads to salvation, but, but we can also distinguish that from common grace. Um, maybe you've heard that, that the distinction before, uh, where common grace is, is that general kindness, that general mercy that God uh, showers all humanity with, regardless of whether or not uh, they have faith in Jesus Christ. Right? It's, it, all people experience an aspect of God's common grace to some, to some degree or some, some aspect of it. Whether it's the very fact that you woke up this morning, you woke up is, is, is an act of God's, of God's common grace. Um, it's, it's grace that you got that extra hour of sleep um, last night, it's God's common grace, unless you had young children who's, you know, now their internal clock is all messed up, so they got up earlier than you would hope them to do. But, uh, so, so that's an aspect of God's grace, is, is the fact that you woke up this morning. Whether, and, and the beauty of creation, when we look at the beauty of the creation and the created order, that, that's an aspect of God's grace. And the fact that we can, we can learn, that we can see what's around us, that we can, we can interact, we can have relationships, uh, the fact that we can, uh, we can, um, we can teach, we can learn, we can read, we can organize, uh, we, can, we can be creative, our creative process. All that comes as, as, as examples of God's common grace toward, uh, toward all of us. 
And common grace is also the reason, by the way, this is a good point to be make, made as well, is that we, as Christians, can learn from non-Christians as well. Right? But even common grace, I think, is really meant as a way of pointing us to a, a, a greater manifestation of God's grace, of God's saving grace. Paul asks this question in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So common grace is meant to lead us to saving grace. All saving grace is meant to do is to lead us into a peaceful relationship with God where we can have eternal life in Him. That's, that, that's what saving grace is. And that's, it's called grace precisely because of the fact that it's, it's really grace. It's not earned. It's, it's a gift that God gives us. Not something that we, can, that we can inherit on our own, but something that God has given to us through Jesus Christ. Right? James Montgomery Boyce uh, wrote this. He points out that, that Paul, in, uh, in, in, in the very beginning of, of verse 4 of, of chapter 2 in Ephesians, Ephesians 2.4, he says that, he, that Paul is effectively summarizing the entire gospel in two words. These two words are what? But God. Right? So we, we're dead in our sins. We're chained to the desires of our flesh and to the world. We're willingly following after Satan and his schemes, and we're in danger of it because of God's condemnation, his just judgment toward us because we're under his wrath. But God. God, whose whose wrath we deserve and that we're under, and who is perfectly qualified to exact his righteous judgment on us, he instead enters into creation with the intention to save Sinful humanity. And that's the first facet of grace that we would do well to understand, is that grace begins with God's, just his, his motivation for coming to us in the first place. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Out of the richness of his mercy and because of the great love that he has, he initiates salvation. Grace is, is God pursuing sinners in order to reconcile them to himself. And he achieves the mission that he embarks upon by defeating the problem, sin. He doesn't, he doesn't just gloss over it. He doesn't just uh, push it aside or overlook it to some degree. But he directly deals with sin, with the, with the, with the, with the problem. And that's the next, next aspect of grace that we see, that, that God's, it's his God's work to restore sinners to himself, which is accomplished through Jesus Christ. So let's Christus, right? It's an atoning work. It, means it, it, it brings us back into relationship with God. It, it atones for the sin, makes amends for the sin. It's, it's a substitutionary work, right? It's a propitiatory work, meaning that it is a, a wrath-absorbing work. And, it's, and it actually, it's, in, it's an infinitely costly work as well, right? Because it, it requires and it necessitates the death of God's Son, Jesus Christ. In his book, Grace Alone, Carl Truman puts it this way, which I think was fascinating. It took me a couple minutes to, to really understand what he was saying. But when I got it it, 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 it made a lot of sense. Sin is, he says, quote, sin is violent, lethal rebellion against God. No argument there, right? if we're looking at Scripture. Sin is violent, lethal rebellion against God. And then he goes on to say, and biblical grace 
is God's violent, raw, and bloody response. End quote. The just response to the vitriol of sin is a swift response of punishment to the guilty person. But, in grace, God has gifted us with a substitutionary sacrifice. We see the beginnings of it in the Old Testament when we look at the sacrificial system where the perfect spotless lamb was slaughtered on behalf of the entire nation of Israel and the blood that that pooled and poured out of that animal was then collected and it was sprinkled on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. And that was the atonement, that was what made amends of the sins for the whole nation of Israel and that happened yearly. But then centuries later came a once and for all substitute for the sins of all humanity. Motivated by grace, by mercy and love, Jesus came to the earth. And he intentionally bore our sins and he bore the wrath of God, of God's judgment that we deserved. And he did it for us even while we pointed our fingers in disrespect in God's face. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 through 11, Paul writes this, But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified, that is, since we have been declared righteous by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. What makes this truly good news is that Jesus' atoning work on the cross was acceptable to God, right? And that it was also sufficient. God's grace is sufficient. We talk about that, we sing that, God's grace, your grace is sufficient, your grace is enough. But what we're saying by that, and it's the, and what is the foundation of the Reformer's cry, which was grace alone is that when we're saying sola gratia, we're saying that God's grace is sufficient for our salvation. And that the Catholic Church in the 16th century, on the other hand, and even now today, is still teaching that grace, though, is accomplished through faith, by grace through faith, so far so good, plus works. And that's where the major mistake is made. Because... It means, if that's true, that we contribute to our own salvation. That we somehow cooperate with God in salvation. Grace then is not sufficient on its own, but to eternally save us. In fact, what we're saying by that is, is if we add works to that, what we're saying is that Jesus' work on Calvary, his death, his atoning sacrifice, wasn't enough. More needs to be done. And this is precisely why the Roman Catholic Church uh, d- developed the sacramental system um, called penance. And so briefly, I just want to describe what penance is so we, we have a proper understanding of what that means. Um, the Roman Catholic sacrament of penance is, is separated into four different components. Okay? It's, it's, first, it's contrition, which means having true remorse of your sins, not just a fear of judgment or a fear of punishment, but having true remorse for your sins. Confession is the second one, which we, whereby a person will confess his or her sins to a priest, who's the mediator between that person and Jesus. Absolution, whereby a priest will then absolve or declare a pardon on, that, on, the, on the confessor's sin. And then lastly, 
works of satisfaction, which are good deeds, um, something as simple maybe as a prayer or, or a few prayers, that are performed in order to acquire grace and forgiveness. So it's especially on this last point, on this works of satisfaction, that the Reformers cried foul on. Right? Because they recognize that unlike the, the, the Roman Catholic understanding of grace, true biblical grace is truly sufficient to save us from our sins. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 again, verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. I drop down to verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one can boast. It doesn't really get any clearer than that, really. I mean, when we say that grace is sufficient, when, when we're claiming sola gratia, we're effectively admitting the fact that we have absolutely nothing to do with our salvation. We have no part in it whatsoever. God alone in Christ Jesus is responsible for all of it. And that God accomplishes every aspect of our salvation from start to finish. We have nothing that we can do. We accomplish nothing of ourselves. Instead, we are the undeserving recipients of God's gift of grace. And praise God, he's left nothing undone in what he has done for us. Nothing has been undone. Jesus' toning work has overcome every barrier that stands between us and God. He's taken care of all of that. He leaves no stone unturned when it comes to securing our salvation in him. The entirety of the matter is completely done with, case closed. And as recipients of God's grace, Paul goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 2 that we have been now made alive because of it. Once dead, we are now made alive. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together in Christ Jesus. By grace, you have been saved. Notice that the tense here is passive. By grace, you have been saved. It's, it's been done to us. We've been regenerated. That's, that's the theological term which refers to the newness of life that we have in Jesus Christ. It's, it's really the spiritual equivalent to uh, resurrection. Resurrection is, is new life physically. Regeneration is new life spiritually. <clears throat> this is why we, we, we read what Jesus himself, his own word says, that you have been passed from death to life. In John chapter 5, we have been spiritually reborn. John chapter 3, we no longer hostile enemies of God, but we have intimate fellowship with him as his sons and daughters. You can see that right in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 where he mentioned us as, as being adopted into the family of God. So now we have been effectively awakened to the reality of Jesus' beauty, of his glory. And now we are, because of his grace, we are enveloped in his love. And regeneration is the beginning, and along with it, we receive other gifts that come alongside, that come after, that come with it, and that are the gift of faith, which is in verse 8, a desire for godly living in verse 10, and eternal life, which we see in verse 7, which, by the way, eternal life is not just a, a, a... quantity of life, where, and, and though it is, it's not simply just a quantity of life where it's a certain amount of time, but it's also a quality of life, right? That begins now here, and, and it will be effectively completed and, and fully understood and fully experienced when Christ returns. <clears throat> but this brings us now to the last point this morning, which I want to go to, which is our worshipful response 
to the God's grace. We've seen the human condition. We've seen the solution that we see, the divine solution. Now we're going to look at our worshipful response to God's grace. So how should we respond? The question is then, okay, so the grace of God, we are recipients of that. What does it mean to respond to God? And it is by faith. Sola fide. The good news of, of the gospel calls us to repent of our sins and to believe and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord. And that's the bottom line, right? When the Holy Spirit of God draws us to him in Jesus Christ, draws us to Jesus Christ, and he, he awakens us now to the reality of the depths of our sins and the extent of God's grace, the extent that he went to to save us, and our only proper response to that really is faith. We'll learn more about faith next week. But I think serving as a foundation, our response in faith, also there are some other ways in which we can respond to God. And, and, and I, and I want to just point to three this morning. I only have time for three. There's many others. In fact, I would say um, it would be a good idea to talk about these in your community groups this week, talk about these three, but also talk about some other ways in which we can respond to the grace of God. Um, the three that I want to point to at, at this morning are humility, good works, and missional living. First, humility. When, when we finally see the grace of God, it should humble us forever. There's no, there's no boasting about our new status. There's no boasting in, in, in the fact that we're not sons and daughters of God because we haven't earned it, right? There's, there's no room for pride when we're talking about our salvation because we haven't done a thing about it. We've only contributed to our, to our own uh, destruction, so any boasting is not in what we have done, but it's in boasting in what Jesus has done for us in our place. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, But far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Secondly, good works. We've already learned that good works don't contribute to your salvation, but they should, they should certainly flow from the salvation that we've experienced. Verse 10 in Ephesians, that we're, chapter 2, we're in right now. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good works are, are an evidence of, of God's love, and, is, and, and we evidence his grace toward us by loving God and loving other people, right? The two greatest commandments, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, they aren't simply suggestions. They're, they're the actual reason why we have been saved to begin with. We have been saved unto good works. Remember back, we talked about just a little bit ago, the Imago Dei, right? The, that we were made in the image and likeness of God and how we have been marred by sin. Well, the shattered mirror of our lives is being progressively restored so that we can reflect the glory of God through our good works. And lastly, this morning, I want to point out that we respond to the grace of God by joining him on mission to seek and to save the lost. Because we have that new forged identity in God's, in God's grace, through God's grace, we have now been invited to participate with him on, on God's plan of redemption. It's still going forward, still moving, moving forward. It doesn't stop with us. It continues. The power to save souls still rests with God, for sure, with God alone, but we get to declare and we get to demonstrate the gospel to the world around us. We get to see the miracle of re rebirth, regeneration happening right before our eyes. It's, it's amazing because we get the, the vantage point, a twofold vantage point. We get to see first God's coming to us and pursuing us 
And then once he's pursued us, we then get, our eyes are open and we get a new vantage point. We get to see God now pursuing other people. Right? And because of that, when we see that, that ought to cause us to praise God, right? And to celebrate what he's doing. Celebrate his, his grace toward us. In fact, the last, these, these three points really can be summed up, summed up as, as worship, really, worshipful devotion to God. That's why I termed this last one our worshipful response. And this morning we actually have an opportunity to, to respond through worship in another way, in another sense, through, through communion this morning. Um, communion is, is, that, is the way in which we eat of the bread, right? We, re, we drink of the cup, and that symbolizes our, our newfound identity and our, our, our unity with Christ and with his church. And his, his, when his, we, we symbolize and we remember, we contemplate and ponder the body that was broken, his body that was broken, Jesus' body that was broken, and, and, was, and his blood that was shed for us. And as, we, and as we reflect on his substitutionary sacrifice done in our place, we take this time to, to search our hearts as we're, as we're thinking about that sacrifice. We, we quiet our hearts, we quietly confess our sins, we repent of the sins that, that, are, that are before us that God brings to our minds and our remembrance. And then, though, we then follow that by celebrating the grace of God. It's a celebratory event. It's not just a somber event. It's, a, it's, 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 it's celebratory because we look at God's grace and what he has accomplished for us on the cross. So we're going to take some time this, mor- this morning. As a, ba- as a band comes up, they're going to play for us. But we're going to take some time to, to repent of our sins. And then when we're ready, we're going to, we're going to come forward and take of, of, of the, the offering this morning, that, that the offering that's been given to us, the, the bread and the cup. The communion table is meant for all Christians, not just, not just for those who call King's Chapel their home, or their family, or their church, but it's for all Christians, all believers. So you're, you're welcome to come if, you're, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ. If you're not a believer, if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, then we would say we, please refrain from taking the elements, but instead just take some time in your seats and just ponder the depths of God's love and his grace toward you. Right? And, and, and we would certainly love to talk to you after the service. Come talk to me. Come talk to one of the pastors here or somebody here. And we can tell you what about what it means to follow after Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the gospel that saves us. We thank you for grace that is the vehicle that you have used in order to bring us back to yourself. Nothing that we could have ever earned on our own. We had no desire for you. We had no desire for godliness or godly living or, or uh, had wanted to have nothing to do with you. But instead, Lord, you have come to our con- situation and you have fixed the problem. And you fix the problem eternally, not just for a moment, for, but for all eternity, for all those who place their faith in you. So I pray, Lord, that you would, we would respond this morning, um, maybe for the first time in, in saving faith. And if not, if not the first time, then, Lord, I, I just pray that you would help us to repent of, the, of our sins and, and glory in, in the cross and glory in our, rela- newfound, in our relationship with you. Um, for your glory, Lord, and for, and for the joy that, that we get as a byproduct. Verse in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.